Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Galatians chapter 5. The text is printed in the bulletin for you also. Or there are some uh, Bibles on the back table there also to remind you that uh, we're, we've got a growing collection of things for the children to engage in um, during the, the most tedious part of worship for them, which is now, which is me. <laughs> Um, they can put up with me better if they're coloring in little things that go along with a sermon, which we've got available. We've got Bibles back there for them and other little books. So um, avail yourselves of that if, uh, if you want to. So, um, and then also just a couple more brief announcements that uh, neglected earlier. Um, today is uh, Vanessa's birthday, and so yeah, she's, she's excited about that. Um, so we've got some cake available in the fellowship hall, um, coffee too, I think. So, uh, stick around after the service. We've got, uh, refreshments and a song to sing. And, um, and then after a little while, we'll, we'll come back in here and we'll have a sermon discussion. So if you've got questions or, um, want to engage in a discussion on what we're about to talk about, then, uh, you're welcome to stay for that. So, all right. So Galatians 5. Uh, this is the fourth week now in a seven-week series, uh, so I'll, a little over halfway there, uh, on the Trinity that we've been going through this summer, it's, um, looking at the, the significance, um, which is pretty much, pretty much infinite, <laughs> the significance of the truth that God is um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is triune, that God is love because he's three persons in one God. Um, so maybe this has been kind of a refresher course on basic Christian teaching for you uh, so far this summer, or maybe it's uh, completely new and profound and uh, transformational. Uh, maybe it's um, just kind of restructuring some of the ways that you've been thinking about Christianity. Uh, you've been thinking about them rightly, but it's maybe bringing them together uh, in a deeper, more meaningful way. Maybe this is just totally confusing, um, uh, heady stuff, uh, which some of it I admit, it just kind of blows my mind, and I have to sit there stunned for a little while, uh, trying to, to grapple with um, God's nature as triune. But um, <clears throat> Christianity is about reality, right? It's about reality, or at least it should be about reality. We shouldn't be here uh, fooling ourselves uh, about life and about the world. Christianity is about the way that things uh, really are. It's descriptive of the way things really are. Um, it's especially descriptive of the God who's behind the way that things really are. And Christianity is uh, about the way that things are meant to be. Um, and reality and the way that things are meant to be uh, all have their ground in God. Reality can be traced back to who God is. Uh, because who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, it gives uh, shape to everything that he's made. He made things... Um, the way that he made them because of who he is. And it, uh, it gives direction and purpose to everything that he's made uh, because he made it according to his own will, according to his own uh, nature. So that right there is a statement of tremendously good news because we're talking about a God of love. Um, and Thomas Aquinas says that uh, the purpose and fruit of our whole life is the knowledge of this God, the Trinity, in unity in union with this God. We're, we're brought into a close, close relationship with this God, and the purpose and the fruit of our whole life is uh, to know him as he truly is. <clears throat> so we've looked so far at how we are to abide in the Trinity. We have a personal relationship with God, uh, the Father, 
have that relationship with him in the Son, in the place of the Son, through the Holy Spirit who unites us to the Son. Um, we've looked at how the Trinity saves people like us for a relationship, how he reveals himself uh, to us in a way that um, makes that relationship possible. Um, we've looked at how the image of this God, remember um, from the first chapters of Genesis, God created humanity in his image, um, which is ultimately to say he, he created us for relationships of love and joy. Um, We've looked at how that image is being restored in broken, sinful people like us. It's being restored corporately together, that, that together the church is the place that um, reflects God's nature as triune in our unity with one another. Um, so, yeah, we've been looking at big basic blocks of the uh, kind of big building blocks of the Christian faith, the way that we understand the scriptures, and the way we understand the world and our relationship with God. And this morning, we'll look at another big, huge one, which is uh, growth as a Christian, growth in Christ, uh, Christ-likeness, sanctification, um, spiritual transformation. The, the word we're going to look at um, this morning is holiness, right? uh, holiness as it describes this growth, becoming more like Christ uh, in our personal character. So, <clears throat> so let me pray, and then we'll read from Galatians 5, uh, starting in verse 13. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, sending your son to reveal yourself to us. We thank you and him for sending your spirit into our hearts to um, illuminate our minds and to make our hearts new and receptive and to create faith and trust in you where there was none before. And we pray now as we come to your word that you would, as Joe prayed earlier, uh, do uh, perform a miracle of love again in reshaping us after the image of Christ about whom we learn and in whom we have salvation. We pray in his name. Amen. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, this is a sermon about holiness. Admittedly, the word holy or holiness uh, doesn't appear in this passage, but anybody who reads the Bible um, will recognize the same theme here, the same dynamic uh, that love, fruit of the Spirit, uh, keeping God's law, fulfilling God's law. Uh, these are all ways of talking about holiness, what grows in a Christian's life over time. Uh, Jesus talked about um, the great commandment, uh, the second of which is, is mentioned here. When he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which Paul quotes here. Uh, but Jesus and Paul are both quoting from Leviticus 19, which we read in our Old Testament passage, where, um, where God says to Moses, you're going to speak to the congregation and you're going to tell them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then he expounds what that means, what holiness looks like. And it's, a, it's, a, it's like a sermon on the Ten Commandments that he gives, right? It's, a, it's expounding uh, most uh, of the Ten Commandments. And he ends each of them with, I am the Lord. Remember, you should be holy for I am holy. I'm the Lord. And then at the end he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is kind of a summary statement of everything he's been talking about, a summary statement of holiness. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Uh, Peter calls attention to this connection between our holiness and the keeping of, uh, of God's law and uh, the connection that God is the Lord and that he's holy. He says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And a little bit later, he kind of sums it up, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So, um, so we're to imitate our holy God in our own holiness. Our holiness is to be a reflection of God's holiness. God uh, as our Savior, God as our Father. Right. Um, holiness is a pretty common term for evangelicals to use for our growth. Um, but it's a term that I think we need to understand better, especially as we connect uh, that term to the, the Holy Spirit, right? Holy is kind of the designation that the Spirit goes by. Um, and the Spirit is central to our passage. Right? The Holy Spirit is central to our passage. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And he says, keep in step with the Spirit. So he's pointing at our relationship to the Holy Spirit as the grounds for our own growth in holiness. And he's calling it the fruit of the Spirit, this is the stuff that the Spirit uh, generates in our lives. But, um, but we need to know what holiness is, especially in light of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who is so frequently uh, identified as holy. Um, 
Galatians, uh, just to give a little bit of context to what Paul's talking about here, Galatians is a book about sanctification. It's a book about holiness. It's a, um, the wrong idea had been floating around in Galatia, um, which Paul was addressing with this letter, addressing pretty strongly, um, if you read it through from, from the beginning. But, um, the wrong idea is floating around that, that keeping the Jewish law, keeping the Old Testament law, especially um, uh, circumcision, the, the right of um, entry into the, the people of God in the Old Testament, um, especially circumcision, you've got to keep that because that's what makes one really all right with God. And that's what makes one really a full member of the community of God's people. Right? So uh, the people who taught this, uh, Paul calls Judaizers, they're the ones who would make Gentiles like you become Jews if you want to be really right with God and part of his people. Um, they basically got exactly backward the relationship between justification and sanctification. Try to make this description quick. Justification is a declaration, right? It's a, de- it's, it's a declaration by God's grace alone that comes to you through faith alone uh, that your sins are forgiven, that you are counted righteous in God's sight because of Jesus' life and death on your behalf, uh, his death on the cross for you. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified. You are declared righteous. You are made right with God. You are accepted in his sight as he accepts his own perfect beloved son. You aren't justified in God's sight. You're not made right with God um, because of who you are, because of anything that you've done or anything that's in you. Uh, So you could never be good enough to warrant this justification And you could never be so bad as to be beyond justification by God's grace. Uh, It doesn't depend on you. Justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and it happens once for all at the beginning of the life of faith, uh, when you are reconciled to God and declared righteous in his sight um, through faith in his Son. So justification is being considered uh, by God exactly as God considers Jesus. It's a declaration. Sanctification... Is, is a transformation. It's something that other people would be able to see in us. Right? Um, it's, it's actually becoming more like Jesus. It's actually growing in Christ's likeness in your mind, in your heart, in your actions. And this only takes place in the life of those who are already justified, who have put their faith in Christ, who've been uh, united to him and therefore declared righteous in God's sight because of that union. Um, the Judaizers in Galatia got it backwards. They taught that, um, that people were only justified if they were first sanctified, basically. It's a really simplified way of looking at the, the background of what's going on in this letter, uh, and it's something that causes dispute among scholars. But, but at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. People were okay. They were, they were part of the real group. They were okay with God if they kept this law. You're, you're justified only if you are first sanctified. So Paul got really upset because in reversing that scheme, um, these people had completely destroyed the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because it is no good news at all to tell someone, you have to live in such a way if you want to be right with God and if you want to be part of his people. You have to live in such a way in order to get God to love you or earn God's favor in your sight. That's not news at all, Right? let alone good news, it's not news, it's advice. Uh, 
It's the same kind of advice that you hear in all the world's religions. But Christianity is about news. It's about good news that what Jesus has done is enough to make us right with God. And that from that place, from, from that place of having a restored relationship with God, then our lives can truly be changed and transformed, set back on the right track, uh, renewed in the image of God who created us, renewed in the image of uh, our Savior, Jesus, the Son of God. So toward the end of Paul's argument, here is where we find our text. Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom. So you are free from the burden of the law as a means to justification. That's never how it was really intended anyway. It was never meant to reconcile you to God. The law condemns you and points you to your need for a savior, points you to your need for grace, right? Uh, When you read God's law, when we read it from Leviticus 19 earlier this morning, you should have been thinking, oh no, (laughs) that's not me. And you should reach out in desperation for for God's mercy uh, through his uh, savior. But in Christ, through his life, and through his sacrificial death on your behalf, you're free from the law. You're free from the obligations of the law. You're free from the penalty of the law, which was the obstacle between you and God. That penalty is God's wrath. That was the obstacle between you and God, which weighed on your uh, conscience like heavy chains. Because you and I broke God's law. You and I deserve the full penalties of God's law, but Jesus, who never broke God's law, who never deserved the penalties of God's law, he took those penalties for us and freely grants us then his own status of righteous in God's sight. This is exciting, right? This is exciting. Hooray. Free from the obligations of the law. Free from the condemnation of the law. Right? We're free. No legal penalty? That's awesome. For some folks, that means that the Christian is now free to sin however he likes. Live however you want now. No legal penalty? Great. Lust, greed, power, hate, envy, here I come. No consequences to my sin? Sin, here I come. But Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So rather than use our freedom to indulge ourselves, which is a complete misuse of that freedom, it's a misunderstanding of that freedom, rather than being made free to pursue desires that are contrary to God's will, we're, we're to consider ourselves free to serve, free to pursue desires that are in alignment with God's will, free to love free to love one another, even as we love ourselves. And that's the core of Christian freedom. It's it's love. Love of other. Complete, total, self-giving love of other. Is at the core of what uh, Christian freedom should mean. Because what's wrong with us is self-love. And in Christ, we're set free from that. We're set free for true love of other. Apart from Christ, all we can do is love ourselves. And the tragedy of this broken world is that in love of self, we do the things that Paul says, don't do these things. The tragedy is, uh, in love of self, we bite and devour and consume one another in the desires of our flesh. 
And this is um, dehumanizing language there in verse 15, biting, devouring, consuming, dehumanizing, right? Savages, beasts do that to each other. Not humans that are made in God's image. But, um, but this language is being used to communicate more than just savagery, right? more than just mindless animal behavior. It really is descriptive of what characterizes uh, relationships of those who are ultimately self-centered. Right? That is, those who are of the flesh. And those who are of the flesh have transactional relationships, consumeristic relationships. We use one another for ourselves. We manipulate one another. We consume one another. If I treat you well at all, it's because I want something from you. So abusing the other makes complete sense when self is what really matters. Right? <clears throat> Paul warns us away from this again a, a little bit later in the text, verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. John Calvin uh, describes this in his commentary here. He says, of many evils existing in society at large, and particularly in the church, ambition is the mother. Paul, therefore, directs us to guard against it for the vainglory or the conceit of which he speaks is nothing else than ambition or the desire of honor by which every one desires to excel all others. The heathen philosophers do not condemn every desire of glory, but among Christians, whoever is desirous of glory departs from true glory. By, by nature as sinners, we have a hunger for glory. In our self-love, it cannot be filled. That hunger cannot be filled. And, and seeking to fill ourselves with something, that we devour others. Uh, David Bromwich says, ambition is a name for a force that wants to fill a void that nothing can fill. So in the pursuit of self-interest, in order to fulfill the desires of the flesh, we one-up one another, we use others for sex, we grab for power, we abort unwanted babies who threaten our comfort, we hate and despise and envy those who would threaten our supremacy. We engage in all manner of mindless, sensual debaucheries at the expense of others, at the expense of true community, at the expense of real relationships of love. All of our relationships become transactional, consumeristic, and therefore cease to be true relationships. And these things are apparently clear as day, Paul says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. We are the kind of people that do this all the time. This whole world is filled with people who do this and things like this. These things characterize our lives apart from God. And that's how Paul is using the term flesh here. He's not just saying body, right? He's not just saying your material, the part of you that's material. When he says flesh, though it includes what we do with our bodies, he's actually talking about life apart from God, life that's pointed away from God. Right? Uh, Philip Ryken, in his commentary, says that the, the part of me, this is what he... He's uh, defining the flesh as it's the part of me that does not want what God wants 
my corrupt human nature in all its weakness and depravity. So very simply, it's the self-centered self. It's the self-centered self, the distortion of the imago dei or the other-centered self. The image of God in us is supposed to be other-oriented, but we are self-oriented. And that self, the self-centered self, is empty and nothing can fill it. It will always be empty. Donald Fairbairn says in a quote that's uh, printed at the beginning of the bulletin there, he says that full people give, empty people take. The reason we so often act manipulatively, the reason we use family and work relationships for our own benefit rather than for the good of others is because somewhere deep within our souls we are empty and we are trying to fill up from other people. And that does not work. So it's mutually assured destruction for all of us, right? Consume one another. And the answer to this to this problem and this tragedy, the, the way to grow in true love and true holiness is not to fill the flesh. It's not to fill the old nature. It's to kill it. Right? It's to kill it. You don't change the flesh. You expose it and you choke it and you starve it and you fight it and kill it. In fact, you crucify it. And in fact, if you're in Christ Jesus, you already have crucified it. And it hangs dying. It's doom sealed on the cross of Christ. It says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And Paul says earlier in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. The self-centered self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, who loved me and gave himself for me. So pay attention to this. If you are in Christ by faith, you are free from the self-centered self. You're free from it. You're free to be the other-oriented self that you were always meant to be. You are free to love even as God loves, which is why Paul talks about um, the things that characterize our lives, love, being it's the fruit of the Spirit. We're free to love as God loves, which is through the Spirit. James Dunn calls the fruit of the Spirit a character sketch of Christ. Right? You read through verses 22 and 23, that describes Jesus. That describes the Son of God. And J.I. Packer says in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, that it describes then the profile of Jesus Christ himself in his disciples. Right? Jesus lives in us, and the character sketch that's true of him is true of us because he's in us. If Christ lives in you by his spirit, then his life is formed in you. Christian holiness, then, holiness is the life of Christ in you by his spirit. And that means love. That means love. The way that uh, Paul is using language here, when he lists these, he says uh, the singular fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. He's pointing to love as it's the fruit. And the following, joy, peace, patience, etc., 
their facets and attributes of love. In in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul attributes several of these attributes uh, to love. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love rejoices with the truth. In Leviticus 19, which we read earlier, which is summed up with this concept of love, the whole law is fulfilled with love. It's listing out um, everything. Everything good about the Christian life is summed up in love. It's a facet of love, right? Luther said, it would have been enough to have said, love is the fruit of the Spirit, and no more. For love itself, uh, it, it extends itself into all the fruits of the Spirit. And John Calvin says, love forms the chief part of Christian perfection. Don't, don't misunderstand that as uh, saying we could be perfect in this fruit of the Spirit uh, in this life. It's, uh, it's just the goal that we're aiming at, Christian perfection, holiness. Love is the chief part of it. And that's true. Love is the chief fruit of the Spirit, the chief aspect of Christian holiness, because love, this is where it gets crazy, love is the very nature of God's own holiness, because God is love, because God is triune, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need a better definition of holiness. I think usually people... Uh, conceive uh, of God's holiness as sort of an abstract moral purity, some kind of a blazing infinite righteousness that sets on fire sinners who are in his presence, right? Um, and there's a sense in which God's holiness does that. It does. But, but holiness has at its root the concept of distinctness, being different, being set apart, So to say that God is holy is to say that he is utterly unlike anything else. He is utterly unlike us, for sure, anything else. And the main way in which this is true is that he is love. He is utterly unlike us in that he is divine love because he is a trinity. So before you think I'm just making this up, there's uh, an amazing passage in Hosea Chapter 11 it says uh, it, God is speaking to his people who clearly deserve his wrath for their uh, spiritual adultery, for their betrayal of their lover who is God. And he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel, hand you over to destruction, right? To the punishment that you deserve, how can I do that? My heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. We think the Holy One in our midst is the one who comes in wrath. God's compassion towards sinners grows warm and tender. God will not burn them up in his righteous anger. He will not come in wrath because he is unlike men, because he's holy, because he's God. He's the holy one. And being triune, this is reflective of his love, right? Uh, God is in himself love 
for other. He's three persons united in and defined by their relationships of love with each other. And, and one of these persons usually goes by the identifier holy. The Holy Spirit. The spirit of love. The spirit of holiness. And Karl Barth says that the spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is common to the Father and the Son, and who unites the Father and the Son. In this triunity of his essence, God is eternal love in himself. He is both the one and the other. And I might add, hopefully safe from heresy, he is the love of the one for the other. In the person of his spirit, that's who he is. The spirit is the father giving himself to the son and the son giving himself to the father. The spirit is the love between the father and the son. He's the fellowship of the Trinity and his fellowship is with us. The spirit is the one by whom the love of God is poured into our hearts. It says in Romans 5, the Spirit is the one in our text who brings forth his holy fruit of love in our lives by drawing us into the very communion of God, by uniting us to the Son. Um, it says in Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, in the Son of God, you're all sons of God. You're all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then in Galatians 4, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So as the Holy Spirit is given to us, we have the love of the Father for the Son as ours to enjoy forever. And as the Holy Spirit is given to us, we have the love of the Son for the Father as ours to exercise Um, the fruit of the Spirit, then, is the yield of the one who unites us to the Son, who places us in the Son, in whom we abide and bear much fruit. If the Spirit lives in us, then what characterizes him, holiness, love, should characterize us. Yeah, we have the life of Christ in us, and it's a life characterized by love of other. Right? Tim Keller says... Um, when he's describing the, he's kind of giving definitions of the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about love. It's to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value, not for what the person brings you. Right? It's to love the person for who they are and to do what's good for them, not what's good for you. It's to love for their sake, it's, it's to be truly other oriented. So love is, love is self-giving, and that's who the Spirit is. He's the Father giving himself to the Son, and the Son giving himself to the Father. And he lives in us to free us from our self-centered self. Um, so 2 Corinthians 3, <clears throat> again Paul writes, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, the image of the Lord. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Um, Again, Karl Barth says that Christian love turns to the other purely for the sake of other. It does not desire it for itself. It gives itself. And that love um, looks like, comes across as, is fleshed out in the rest of the list here. Joy is, is delighted love. Think Song of Solomon. Um, it's delighted love. It's the delight of lovers who are fully given to one another. Peace is contented love. Peace is reconciliatory love. It's love that aims to make things the way that they're supposed to be between people. Patience is suffering love, persevering love, enduring love. It's, it's the endurance through trials and adversity. Kindness is pleasant, friendly love. Considerate love, helpful love. Goodness is generous love. Faithfulness is trustworthy love. Reliable and dependable love. Gentleness is humble love, sweetly tempered love. Self control is sober, chaste, temperate, moderate, wise love. The Christian who loves like God loves gives up his or her rights, gives up his or her preferences, gives up his or her very self for the sake of other. And that sounds beautiful and right, doesn't it? Uh, to lay down your life for your children, to da- lay, lay down your life for your spouse, to lay down your life for your friends, for your neighbors, even for your enemies. That kind of self-giving love only happens as we walk in the Spirit who lives in us through faith in the Son of God. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this vision of holiness, uh, the fact that you are holy, it inspires us to imitate you in your holiness and to participate in that holiness. We want your love to be in us in a way that uh, wrenches us away from ourselves, that frees us from our self-centered self and frees us to be reborn and recreated and recrafted in the image of Christ who is perfect in the fruit of the Spirit. We give ourselves to you. We ask for your mercy. We ask for you to grow these fruit in us as we abide in you and you abide in us so that that we would have true fellowship with you and with one another and so that the world would know that you live in us not for our sake, but for the glory of your holy name and for the sake of your gospel and your kingdom going forth in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.